chapter 2. Kind of a mixed message there, huh? I hear you. 1 Peter chapter 2. Well, one thing about going through um, a book or a letter that someone's written is as you make your way through it, you have to go through all the verses. You can't leave out the difficult ones. And this morning, we're going to be dealing with some very difficult words this morning, especially as it relates to relationships. And today, we're looking at a hero's relationships. Look at the introduction there on your outline. Right in the middle of Peter's letter, he addresses the important issue of marriage. It is interesting to note that most all ancient writings do not address how husbands and wives ought to interact, nor what the relationship should look like. Yet God esteems marriage as the highest of all human relationships. In his letter, in his letter Peter addresses the wives in, ver- in the first six verses and then the husbands in verse 7. Now, some of you could possibly look at that and say, well, wait a second now. He's, he's talking to wives. He's talking to women for six verses, and he, he's only talking to men for one verse. Don't, aren't they the ones that need all the help? Well, you're right about that, at least the counseling I've done in the past. But I will tell you this. In most places in Scripture, when there's address to, to women and men, most of the time the men are being more addressed in those, in those sections. Here in Peter, however, we have a little different view uh, as it relates to the responsibilities. Now, over the years, there's been much said about marriage. Uh, attending a wedding for the first time, a little girl whispered to her mother, Why is the bride dressed in white? The mother replied, because white is the color of happiness. And today is the happiest day of her life. The child thought for a moment and said, so why is the groom wearing black? (laughs) Okay, we won't touch that. The philosopher Socrates once said, by all means marry. If you get a good wife, twice blessed you will be. If you get a bad wife, you'll become a philosopher. Oh, that doesn't say much about his wife, does it? Chuck Swindoll has said concerning marriage, a good marriage isn't so much finding the right partner as it is being the right partner. And boy, that's a good word there. Everything, now think about this, y'all. Everything that God has created has not only purpose, but there's also structure associated with it. This would include the institutions of government and even marriage. God is a God of order, and within the family, he speaks to that order. Now think of this, y'all. Everything God commands, everything, you can can name every command in in God's word. Every one of those commands is intended to bring protection, provision, and purpose to our lives. Every one of them. I mean, just look it up. Try to apply it. You'll see it. This would include his instructions to husbands and wives. So when God speaks on the matter of of, of husbands and wives, what he's he's trying to do, now think about this. This is the context in which we're going to study this morning. He's trying to provide protection. He's trying to bring provision. And he's trying to bring purpose to it. And so that's the context in which we'll be looking this morning. So look on your outline. A word to wives concerning husbands. And the first thing you see there is be submissive. Now, some of you are like, I can't believe you're doing this today. Well, (laughs) it's in there. I told you these were difficult verses. I want you to look at verse 1 of chapter 3. 
Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. The word likewise there is in reference to the fact he's already told us to be submissive to those who are in authority of government. And he's already told us that we need to be submissive to it when it comes to our employers. And so he's carrying the theme all the way into the marriage relationship and he's addressing wives with this, of course. Now, of course, this is not well accepted in our culture here in the 21st century, partially because submission is not, has not been understood correctly. And so look on your outline. Submission is not agreeing with everything your husband says. Now, if you're married and you're in this room, <laughs> raise your hand if you've agreed with everything your husband's ever said. Anybody? I had two older ladies in the last service raise their hand, and I was like, wow, there's some good submission going on there. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it doesn't mean that. Submission doesn't mean that. Submission is not leaving your brain or your will at the wedding altar. Submission is not believing a wife is inferior or unequal. Submission is not putting the will of your husband before the will of Christ. Submission is not getting your personal spiritual strength primarily through your husband. Submission is not acting out of fear toward your husband. That's not submission. That's not a biblical view of submission. Now, before we go any further, let me show you this verse. When it comes to the kingdom of God, Galatians 3 addresses how we are before God. It says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What does that say? That some are not inferior to others, all are equal before God. And this is a kingdom principle as we see in scripture. Now, this is true But there is an authority structure that is found in God's word concerning the family. And and it's clearly there. Now, again, what's, what's this authority structure to do? It is to provide, it is to protect, and it is to give purpose. And that's what you find in God's word. Now, submission is these three things. Affirming your husband's calling of leadership. Listen to me. Your husband, your father, has been given the responsibility and calling to be a spiritual leader of his home. That is mandated and given by God himself. He is responsible for his family. And so when you look at it, it's affirming your husband's call of leadership. It's placing yourself under your husband's leadership. It's not the husband saying, hey, woman, you got to submit. It is you voluntarily submitting to your husband. Again, and then thirdly, it is allowing your husband to lead. Now, some of you are sitting here saying, you know, I tried that one time. I let him lead. I'll never do that again. <laughs> well, well I, I, I hate to tell you this, but it's in there, okay? It's in there. Now, let me sh- show you this. And this may kind of ease the load a little bit. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes on the same ch- subject. Look at what he says. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ, also as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And here's the key. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Let me ask you a question, ladies. Would it, be, would it not be easy or easier to submit if your husband loved you like Christ loved the church? 
I mean, someone who would sacrifice his very life for you, who not only says it, but he demonstrates it time and time again. Someone who, who seeks to serve his family, that puts the needs of his family and especially his wife above his, his own needs. That's exactly what we're seeing here. And so when you look at submission through that context, when you look at it through that lens, you easily see that that is the whole idea in which God is looking when it comes to submission. Now, some of you are sitting here today and you're saying, okay, so I only submit when he loves me like Christ loved the church, right? That's not what I'm saying either. What we need to understand as it relates to the authority structure, when it, as it relates to the structures that God gives to certain institutions, that including marriage, is that we are called to submit, and it's careful here, as unto the Lord. That means we are doing it for the benefit of the Lord. Sometimes it means it, it, it's not going to play out too good for us, but we need to understand as it is unto the Lord. Secondly, Wives, be respectful. Be respectful, and really primarily to two things. The first one there is to meet his greatest spiritual need. Your husband or your spouse's greatest spiritual need is salvation in Jesus Christ. That is his greatest need. And Peter is pointing that out here. In verse one, he says again, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands that even if some do not obey the word, those husbands have not aligned themselves with the scriptures, they without a word from you may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct. Now, think again to whom Peter is writing. He is writing to persecuted Christians. And think about that. Every word you read here, he's writing to those who are probably in which if there's a faith that's being demonstrated in that community, they're being ostracized in the community. That's, that's what these people are dealing with. If it's found out by the Roman government, they could be brought to trial. They could possibly be executed. Now think about that. And the context we're reading here in these verses, it is a, it's an implication that the wife has a faith in God a faith in Jesus Christ, but the husband may not. Think about how embittered that husband may be. If it's found out that the wife has a faith in Jesus Christ and he's being ostracized, even though he's not a believer, because of, what is, because of the faith of his wife. And not only that, they possibly could be in a lot of trouble with the government as a result of it. And so what Peter is doing, he's trying to say, okay, ladies, you're in a very delicate situation here. The, 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 the highest calling that you have right now, that's what he's telling us, is to see that your husband comes to salvation in Jesus Christ. And you need to act accordingly, strategically in such a way that would help bring about that, uh, that, that scenario. So, so Peter writes to the wife and tells her a possible strategy to help win her husband over to faith. So when it says husbands, it says husbands that they may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe their chaste conduct. The word chaste there literally means something that is undefiled. It's undefiled uh, conduct, but it has a deeper meaning. It also means a conduct, listen, that is not manipulating. Now think about that. It's, it's not a conduct that manipulates. 
And so that's what we're hearing here. So just as Peter wrote in chapter two, if you were here last week, here's what we learned. No matter what our condition is in life, we should be a witness for the Lord in, other to bring, in order to bring others to him. This would include our spouse. So number two, we need to be, wives need to be respectful to meet his greatest emotional need. It's not just his spiritual need. It's his greatest emotional need. I want you to look at verse two. It says, when the husband observes your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. That is not saying that you are to, to fear your husband uh, in, in, in the way we know fear. It's a, it's a picture of respect. It's a respect for him. So the word fear here could be translated respect. Now, let me just say this. If you ladies don't know this, you need to understand this. Your husband's greatest need is respect. He wants people to respect him. And that needs to start with you and the children. That's his greatest need. Now, if you were to look at ladies, ladies aren't going around saying, yeah, I'm demanding respect around here. If I don't get respect, I tell you, the whole house is going to pay for this. You won't hear women talking that way. A woman wants to be cherished, as we've said before. She, she wants to be cherished. She wants to be, she wants to be an object of value. And, and that's what we see here. Paul hit it right on the head. Ephesians 5 says this. Nevertheless, let each one of you, speaking to you husbands, in particular so love, so cherish his own wife as himself. And let the wife see what? That she respects her husband. He's pointing out that there's a difference between men and women. Men are demanding respect. Women are, are looking for the idea of being cherished. I've never gone to my wife and told her, honey, I don't think you cherish me enough. I can honestly tell you I've never done that. There have been times, however, where I've communicated my need, my need for respect. And I guarantee you this. If you're in a marriage relationship, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Every argument that you've ever had, you can nail it down to just one simple argument. The wife saying, you don't cherish me, and the man saying, well, you don't respect me. It all comes down to that. Take any argument that you've ever had, see if it doesn't come down to it. And that's our greatest need. Next, he's saying, wives, be beautiful. Wives, be beautiful. And he talks about two different types of beauty here in these next verses. The first, uh, the first word he, or the first idea is the outer beauty. And he's basically saying that should be secondary. Outer beauty should be secondary. Now, let me tell you about our world. Our world demands that outer beauty be what? primary. It's all about the primary beauty of a woman, the primary beauty of a man. And, and everybody's talking about, oh, she's so beautiful. And, and they're, they're looking at cheekbone structures and they're looking at how hair is, the, and, and what, what the person's wearing. And it's all about outer beauty. We've all heard it said that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. How many of you ever heard that? It means different people have different ideas about what beauty is. God's word even has an opinion on the subject. I want you to look at verse 3. It says, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden or the inner person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Now, the New King James uses the word adornment here. 
The word adornment literally means those things that are added to add beauty. That's what adornment means. Not only, it not only refers to the list in verse 3, but the word itself, if you, if you look at the word itself from the Greek, you have the word cosmos, which is where we get what word from? Cosmetics. Cosmetics. That's, that's what it's talking about. Outer adornment. Now think of this. Peter is not saying that women should not use makeup or other external helps. He's not saying that you shouldn't go there. Matter of fact, us men, we appreciate the effort. We really do, okay? But, so, but here, here's what he's saying. He's saying that you're all your, he's saying, that he's saying that if all your effort and investment is external beauty, then in the future, you'll be disappointed that you did not focus on what was most important. What was most important? You'll regret it. If all your, if everything you do, if every decision that you make, every purchase that you make, everything that you look at is all about outer beauty, there will come a time in which you wish you would have put more emphasis on your inner self. According to the writer of Proverbs 31, it says, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now, keep in mind that the things listed in verse 3 can be purchased. The arranging of hair, you go to a beautician. That's what you do. You, I mean, for a lot of women, that, that is a big deal to go to a beautician. I mean, you got to get the timing just right. you got to look at the length. Of, you think, uh, maybe I'll try something new. I mean, you, you go through magazines. You look on the Internet. So I need to find one that's going to really do me right. Again, nothing wrong with that. We appreciate it. But if that's the only thing you're putting emphasis on, we're totally missing it. Totally missing it. And so the things that found in verse 3 can be purchased, but those things mentioned in verse 4 are the byproducts of the Holy Spirit working in a woman's heart. That's what you find there. Which leads us to inner beauty, which should be primary. Peter in verse 4 is about to challenge women to cultivate an inner beauty that is more radiant and permanent than any outward fashionable adornment can ever be. Look at what he says in verse 4 again. Rather, instead of those things, instead of putting all the emphasis in verse 3, put them here. That your inner person, the inner person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious... In the sight of God or in the sight of the Lord. Look, at, look there's three things here that I want you to see. First of all, the idea of incorruptible. It's, it speaks of something that is lasting and pure. It, it speaks of beauty that cannot be destroyed by disfigurement or time. It can't be destroyed. But then he goes on. He says a gentle spirit. It speaks of meekness and humbleness. It's talking about working on the inner part of who you are and, and that being a big part, that gentle spirit. But then it, there's a whole idea of a quiet spirit. It speaks of something that is tranquil and patient. It speaks, and this is where it's hard hitting, but it speaks of lack of drama and competition. That's exactly what it's talking about. And that's what you find here. And it says these things are precious to the Lord. Next, wives, be observant. Be observ observant. 
It's a call to find role models who model inner beauty. And there's two places we can find it. First of all, we need to be observant in the scriptures. Now, now we could use the Proverbs 31 woman as an example. Let me give you a description of who this woman, or what this woman's all about. Listen to her. It says, strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in a time to come. Verse 25 is a very interesting verse. What it's talking about is her emphasis are, are not the clothing or the adornment we found in verse 3. It's about the fact that she's worked on her inner self, her strength and her honor are her clothing. It's not about the outer apparel. And then it says, she shall rejoice in a time to come. That doesn't mean that she can't wait for tomorrow to get here to rejoice. What this is a reference to is older age. It's a woman who says, you know something? I put my emphasis, I put the majority of my investment in the inner person of who I am. And so when, and here's what some translations say. That when older age comes, here's what she said, she laughs at it. That's what some translations literally translate this as. It's kind of amazing when you look at this woman. Verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom and on her tongue is a law of kindness. Listen, verse 26 is a picture of a woman who's developed her inner beauty. Verse 27, she watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. And then it says, give her the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. That means her testimony is out there before you. That is a picture in which God says is precious to him. So we see that. So in the scriptures, women, you, you have different role models. You've got this Proverbs 31 model, uh, role model. You have Ruth who is a beautiful picture of a meek and quiet spirit. You have that picture. You've got the story of Esther, which kind of mixes in the outer beauty with the inner beauty. And you see this beautiful woman, and she's able to do great things. But here in this passage, Peter uses one named Sarah. Sarah is the one that he uses as an example. So look at verse 5. It's for, it says, for in this manner, it's saying, here is your example. For in this manner is former times in former times, the holy women who trusted in God adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, I told you this is tough scripture, calling him Lord. Now, I'm just going to tell you this. My wife has never <laughs> called me Lord. I've showed her this verse <laughs> over and over again. And it just does never come out. <laughs> Listen, before we get so hard on this word and before we say, oh, I told you the Bible's out of date, let's look at what it's really talking about here. It's talking about the respect that she has for her husband. It talks about the fact that she looks up to him. But, but here's something very interesting. One commentator put it this way. Do you know what Sarah, the, the name Sarah literally means? It means Princess. So every time she may be calling him Lord, what may he be calling her back? His little princess. You see, so many times we think that the marriage relationship is one-sided. And here's what I'll hear. I'll hear women come in and they'll say, hey, if I could just get my husband right, could you fix him, then everything's gonna be okay. 
And then sometimes I'll get the husband come in and say, hey, if you can get her right, I know everything's gonna be all right. It seems to always be one-sided when both are broke. Both of them are broke. Now, here's an example. Here's Sarah. As Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord. Now, let me tell you this about Sarah. Sarah did not always have a great testimony. The thing that we read about in Sarah, listen, let me tell you about her, what we read in scripture. Something had to have changed because we read something later. She was very manipulative and she was very competitive. That's what you find with Sarah. You study the scriptures, that's what you find. But then we come to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. Look here on the screen. It says, by faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged God faithful who had promised. There was something that changed in Sarah's life. Something had to have changed. I believe if if it had not changed, this would not be written in Hebrews chapter 11. And so what you have here is you have a woman in which she became a role model for other women. She's one who walked away from the manipulation of relationships and the competition of all this, all that goes with some of the territory. And she stepped outside of that and she was found as someone who was faithful that could be a role model. Next, wives be observant in life. Not, not, not just look in the script, but look in life. Identifying and modeling godly examples. Let me say this. We all need role models to model the expectations of God's word. Listen, for years, for most of my life, I've been a student of God's word. I'm just going to tell you, when I was eight years old, I gave my heart and life to Jesus Christ. I remember that I got what was called a cartoon Bible, and I read it through the whole, and it covers the whole Bible. It's not just words about God's word. It is God's word. I read it through four times by the time I was age 12. I was a student of God's word. I love God's word. And, and, and I grew up that I always follow it. No, there are times in my life where I rebelled and turned my back on God and was not faithful to God. But here's one thing. I've always had a heart for God's word. But here's one thing you need to understand. As much as I had a heart for God's word, I knew what God's word said. I didn't really have a lot of role models out there that actually lived it out before me. I mean, they were hard to find. I remember when I started taking seriously what I wanted, uh, being a husband and a wife. And it happened when I came to this, a husband and a wife, to be a husband and a father. Anyway, I came here and God placed all kinds of role models around me. And I just started watching them. How men interacted with their children. How how men interacted with their wives. And so there's that whole idea that we need role models. And verse six says, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good. He's basically saying, here's your example, Titus two. Look Look at it here on the screen. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, Paul telling Tim, uh, Titus this, that the older, man, older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, and love and patience. The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. Y'all, we all need mentors. One thing that I like about a ministry that's in our church, many of you have heard of it, we talked about it numerous times, all in marriage. 
And, and what I love about it is they seek to help take younger couples and place them under the care of couples who are further down the road than they are. And I love that because I, I, get to get, I get to hear the feedback that some of these younger couples are receiving from these older couples. And what you find there is the fact that, that they're literally pouring into their lives and, and preparing them and saying, yeah, uh, when, when, I, when my husband did that for the first time, yeah, I remember how I received that too. And that poor young wife sits there and says, I'm not the only one. <laughs> you mean they're all broke? <laughs> I didn't like that, by the way. Who said sure? But anyway, um, but we all need role models. Wives, be observant in life, identifying and overcoming insecurities. I want to show you something here in verse 6 that, that, that I think the Lord has shown me through this text. It says, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. The word daughters there implies two things. It implies that Sarah is the older example and that women in the faith are sisters. Did you know that? If you, if you are around other women who are in the faith, did you know you guys are sisters? You're sisters. Sisters who are not afraid with any terror. What it literally means is that they're sisters, they're not competitors. When it says who are not afraid with any terror, some commentators believe this is a reference back to the whole idea of submission saying, don't be afraid to follow God's word to be submissive to your husbands. I think it's deeper than that. I think what you find here is the fact they're not afraid with any terror. I think it's a reference to those women who put most of their time and energy in their outer appearance, very little on their inner character because of their insecurities. I think it's speaking to women and their insecurities. And from women's insecurities, do you know what comes forth? Many times competition. And that's a problem that many women struggle with. I want you to look at verse, I, I want you to listen to this. I wish I had had a woman up here to say that. I'm just going to be honest with you. Because some of you women are sitting there saying, how do you know we're that way? Listen, I talk to a lot of people, couples, women, men, about the dynamic of marriage. And that's, that, that's some of the heart of it. So instead of taking my word for it, I went to the expert, Beth Moore. <laughs> In Beth Moore's book, So Long Insecurity, she writes this. Insecurity refers to a profound sense of self-doubt, a deep feeling of uncertainty about our basic worth and our place in this world. Insecurity is associated with chronic self-consciousness along with a chronic lack of confidence in ourselves and anxiety about our relationships. Beth Moore goes on to write that insecurity can produce competition and bitterness between and towards other women. The premise of the book basically says that insecurity happens when women focus too much on outer beauty and not enough on inner beauty or finding security in Christ. They're looking for it in a total different place. Now, where would they get a message like that from? From the world. Did you know that the world's messages are putting women in competition with one another? Did you know that a lot of magazine covers are attempting to do that? I'm serious. And what you have there is you've got a mess. And, and listen, women, you need to realize your place in, in finding your security in Christ. And, and the other women are not competitors. They're, they're people that you can lean on. There's models out there. And you shouldn't feel threatened to go 
to seek that kind of help. Next, a word to husbands concerning wives. Some of you are sitting there saying, you got about six minutes to finish this thing up. You have nailed us women for the last 35 minutes. I don't appreciate this. Wait till Father's Day. Every Father's Day, I nail men, okay? So if you just hang in there, I'll get them, okay? But, but here's, I want, you to look at, I want you to look at the word here. Here in verse seven, as Paul writes this epistle, Paul writes, Peter writes in such a way to elevate women and their treatment from the first century. In the first century, here's the context of writing it. Women were seen as property. You do know that, right? So when you read that that man is to love her as Christ loved the church, that was foreign to the first century. That, that was no, men's thoughts were, uh, they're here to serve me. I purchased them. I gave an endowment. I'm here, they're mine. No, we're staying elevated. I came across a quote this week. The Bible calls men to, to, to be something radically different than what we find in our society. Listen, a man is to be tough for his family to provide for and protect them. A man is to be tender with his family to love and serve them. Any man who is only tough will abuse his family. Any man who is only tender will allow others to abuse his family. I think that's so true. I think it's a great quote. Peter gives us insight as to what we need to be to our wives. Look at verse seven. Husbands, likewise. Now, when it says likewise, guess what it's a reference back to? To the whole idea of submission. The whole theme so far has been submission. He told us to be submissive to the government authorities, to our, to our employers. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. And guess what? We've got the same terminology here for men to be submissive to something. And that's what you see here. And so he says, dwell with them. With understanding, now them is their wives. With understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and being heirs together of the grace of God that your prayers may not be hindered. And so we see that, that men are to submit. But here's what men are to submit to. Men are to walk away, listen, from their selfish desires, from them wanting to fulfill themselves. They are, they are not to submit to those things. They are to submit, listen, to the needs and care of their family. That's the picture that you have here, all right? So what are husbands to do? Look on your outline. Husbands, be intimate. Be intimate. Verse seven says, dwell with them. This phrase in verse seven speaks of intimacy on all levels, spiritual, physical, emotional, even verbal in intimacy. In a recent survey, the average hus husband and wife only share 37 minutes a week in actual conversation. 37 minutes. And let me tell you this about the conversation. And most of that conversation is not done right. Because <laughs> men and women converse differently. Let me give you a test. Husband comes home from work. The wife wants to talk about her day. Possibly even the difficulties or the problems of her day. Here's a question for you husbands. Is she looking for a solution? No. No. Is she telling you this so you can fix it? No. But you know what we as men do? Well, what do you want me to do about it? That's the first thing most men say. And then sometimes we, we even have the nerve to tell them how to fix it. That ain't what they're after. They want you to just listen. Sit there and take it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, they just want you to... Because a woman is, when her conversation, she is releasing, she is getting rid of, she's, she's finding someone who is sympathetic, that cares for her. And it's a way of sharing that. I don't know about you, ma'am, but really we need to do a better job of this. But I'll be honest with you, when my wife goes into that mode, 
I all of a sudden, does this not have any? I start getting sleepy. I just sit there and I'm like, does that not happen to you? But then I found out how much my wife needed it. And I started taking better note of it. Don't do it right every time. But boy, I get a lot right more now than I ever have. I've learned. I've been married almost 33 years. I've learned, okay? They need it. So it's communication. It's different. Genesis 2, 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the Bible says, and they will become one flesh. It speaks of the depth of the relationship. To be intimate with our wives, we need to know them. So look at the next thing. Husbands, be considerate. The Bible says to dwell with them with understanding. No matter what the world says, men and women are different in every way. You do know that, right? I'm glad you do. Men and women have different perspectives, have different needs. Men and women are definitely from two different worlds. With that in mind, we assume our wives desire what we would want from the marriage relationship, but nothing could be further from the truth. We want different things in the marriage relationship. If you don't believe me, have a conversation about it. What are you seeking in this marriage? It's going to be different. I guarantee you. That is why Peter instructs husbands to understand their wives. Listen, will you, men, listen to me. Will you ever completely understand your wife? You will never completely understand her. But it's the attempt to understand her. It's the attempt to get into her world. Try to understand what nourishes her, what helps her, what fulfills her, and to act accordingly. So how can we better understand our wives? Let me give you some, some help. Number one, you got God's word. It's a great help. That's where I'm pulling this information from right now. You can read books on marriage. You know when my marriage finally started turning around? And it took a long time for it to turn around. Is when I started reading books on marriage. When I started attending Bible studies like all in marriage offers and other things offer, that's when things started clicking for me. I wasn't one of the men who wanted to mistreat my wife. I wasn't one of those men who said, well, just, I don't know what you want. I didn't give up. I wanted to know. And I didn't know. But I started finding out. Here's something else. Hang out with good role models. Hang out with men who, who appear to get it right every once in a while. Hang out with them. See what they do. Ask for help. I know you don't like to ask for directions, but at least ask for help. Ask your wife. How many of you have ever said out of frustration, what do you want me to do? That's not a bad question. The problem is we do it, we ask the question in the heat of the moment. Really, well, would it not just blow her away if after lunch today, just before nap time, you said, honey, what do you want from this marriage? Not sarcastically. Honey, how can I serve you? You will blow that woman away. I'm telling you, you would. She'd say, what's wrong? What have you done? What's happened to you? Who took my husband? <laughs> All those things. But ask for help. Husbands, be appreciative. The Bible says giving honor. Listen, for, for all her sacrifices for you as her husband, appreciate her strengths, affirm her contributions. Here, here's a good one. Appreciate the fact that she is probably the only woman in the world who would put up with you. Appreciate them. 
Husbands, be sensitive and strong. The Bible says, as to the weaker vessel. Let's, give, uh, uh, let's look at what that means. Weaker vessel does not imply that women are inferior morally, spiritually, or intellectually, or any other actually, or whatever. Weaker vessel does imply in general, that in general, women are weaker in physical strength. Notice I said in general. I've met many a women who could beat me. They scare me, trust me. I've met them. Okay, it's those linebacker looking women. They'll hurt you, okay? All right, but anyway, this implies, this is the idea that women are more delicate. Someone has said that husbands should treat their wives not as a paper or disposable plate, but as a delicate piece of china. A wife who experiences the things found in verse seven from her husband, listen, it'll make it a whole lot easier to be submissive <laughs> if you're acting on her behalf. And not always seeking your own desires. Next, husbands, be cooperative. The Bible says heirs together. This phrase implies that husbands and wives are partners and they must work together. The Bible says that husbands and wives, listen, are yoked together. It's a picture of animals that are yoked. And let me just say, this is not a pretty picture. Look here on the screen. That, that's really marriage right there, okay? <laughs> But, but it's talking about the whole idea that we're in this together. We're equally yoked. We've become one. We're operating in unison. The problem is most marriages don't look like this. It looks like this. Look here at this screen. Now, I'm not going to tell you who the donkey is, okay? I'll let you figure that out. But uh, that's what most marriages look like, okay? But the fact is we are to be partners, they work together, that husband and wife work together to create a home that mentors the next generation of believers who live out the principles found in God's word. Now, let me just say this. I know there's probably some singles here today, but I can't express to you how important it is that you do what the Bible says when it says to be equally yoked. Really, the terminology implies this that you come together with the same faith in God, <laughs> that you both be born-again Christians. Let, let me just say this, and I, I'm just going to be bold to say it. A believer should never entertain the idea of even dating an unbeliever. I'm serious. Because once you get the emotions attached, a lot more is going to come into that relationship. I think it needs to be one of the first questions. I was talking to my daughter the other day, and I said, well, there any prospects out there? And she says, no, not really, but there's this good-looking guy, you know, that kind of thing. You know, that kind of talk. All of y'all had to talk, you know, and that kind of thing. And, and I said, I bet you're hoping he's a Christian, aren't you? She said, yes. <laughs> it's important. Be equally yoked. Next, husbands, be aware. The Bible says that your prayers may not be, that your prayers may not, may not be hindered. Listen to this. How a man treats his wife is a spiritual matter. Did you know that? A lot of men don't make that as a connection, but it is. Mistreatment breaks fellowship with God and renders prayers powerless. By the way, this gives enemy a foothold in your marriage. When you're not treating your wife the way God's called you to, to treat her, there is a covering. Listen, when things are in place in your marriage, I believe there is a covering that goes over your marriage. I believe when we start... Uh, usurping God's word and start bypassing it, rationalizing it, walking away from it, living in rebellion, that covering is removed. It is open ground for the enemy 
to come in at that point. Husbands are called to be a priest in their homes, to be a spiritual leader in the home. And when they do not fulfill verse 7, it makes it more difficult, creates obstacles for the wife to follow. So here's the application as we get ready to close. For the above realities be true in our marriages. Selflessness is required. We must seek to put the needs of our spouse above our own. It's literally living in, a, living in a marriage is a call to selflessness and it's denying oneself. It is then that we discover that we are living a heroic existence. I want to close with this thought. Probably a decade ago, 10 years ago, I was doing some marriage counseling and I had a couple that was in and there wasn't any major issues in the marriage except for the fact they just were not getting it. They were not clicking And so they came in, and the woman got very emotional. And the man asked the question, what I just said, what do you want me to do? And here's what she said. It's not so much what I want you to do. It's what I want you to be in my life. Here's what she said. I want you to be my knight in shining armor. She was crying. I started, I mean, I was on the bird. I was like, that is beautiful. I mean, I was sitting there, and the only thing she wanted her husband to be, listen, was to be her hero. I'm about to get choked up talking about it now. And y'all, that's what our wives need. Wives, your husband needs you to love him and respect him. Y'all, work for your marriage. (laughs) Get in there. Fight it out. There's nothing wrong with a good fight every once in a while. You get to make up afterwards. I mean, there's good stuff associated with this stuff. (laughs) But do what God's called you to do. Would you stand to your feet, please? Father, we just thank you for your love and your goodness. And Lord, we thank you for the institution of marriage. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you do bring people into our lives that we can share our lives with. And Father, I thank you for that. I thank you for my wife. And Lord, you know, we don't always see eye to eye, but Lord, I thank you that you've made something beautiful out of the brokenness of of our lives through our marriage. And Father, I pray for those that are here in this room who possibly are possibly looking to walk away. Father, help them to fight. Lord, help them to fight for the children. Help them to fight for their testimony. Help them to fight because their wife just needs them and their husband, they just need them. Father, I pray for the single that may be here, that's here today, and they're just looking, wondering if you're going to bring someone into their life. Father, I pray they won't settle, but they'll wait for that one that's being brought into their life, Lord, that they can embrace your word. And, and Father, they don't have to sit. Lord, I just pray they'll learn your word enough to know what to look for. Father, I just thank you for that. I pray for that young lady that may be here today, that young man. Lord, just give them your insight. Father, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, a husband, a wife, maybe they're lost in all this and they didn't know that there was such clear instruction as to how this thing could work. Father, I pray you draw them to yourself today. If there's someone that believes this is a church home you called them to be a part of, I pray you do the same there. We thank you for what you're gonna do in Jesus' name, amen. Getting ready to sing a hymn of invitation. Myself and two other pastors will be here at the front.